Welcome to the 21st Century Schizoid Podcast. I'm your host, Cooper Cherry. Uh, today we have Andrew Stamper joining us again. We are doing our top five films of all time. And uh, we're we're starting off with my number five today. That is Blade Runner. Uh, so, Andrew, thanks, thanks for coming out. And uh, you ready to discuss a little bit of uh, cyberpunk? I think so. And thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. So, I, it was like... It was really tough to narrow down my list. Um, I was originally going to go with Apocalypse Now for number five, but then I was kind of watching it and I was like, eh, I already have the thin red line as my number one. And I felt like it covered a lot of the same ground. So I decided to to go ahead and switch out Blade Runner since I didn't really have a sci-fi um, entry in my list. Yeah, I think you chose a, a really, really good one at that to go ahead and put on your list. Definitely one that I've been obsessed with for probably the last decade or so. But uh, what's funny about this movie for me is that I saw it probably when I was like, I don't know, I must have been maybe four, five, six years old. Um, saw it at home, you know, with my parents on on videotape, and loved the movie. Loved it. Uh, didn't understand why Roy mm-hmm. saved Deckard at all. Like I remember asking my dad, I was like. Why did why did he save the man? Like, mm-hmm. what's the deal with that? But I remember loving the film. I was so young; I didn't even remember what the title of the film was at this point. So, from that point on, for like twenty years or so—well, maybe not quite that long, but pretty close—I um, this kind of this film kind of vanished from my memory. Um, I really, I never, I didn't see it again in between then, and I didn't see it again until. I was actually in uh, grad school and I was a TA and for a visual communicate visual communications course uh, one of the um, the professors showed a, a clip from Blade Runner and I started to kind of put two and two together and I was like wait a minute you know I I really suspect this this is that film that I loved as a kid it seems very similar um, but I just couldn't like couldn't put the put two and two together until then and so from then I rewatched it and I've, I've been obsessed ever since. So this was probably like 2007, 2008. What was your first uh, encounter with Blade Runner? I think the very, I mean, I saw it like you, I saw it when I was younger and I kind of, kind of forgot about it when I was younger. I, you know, like many other kids of the eighties, I went through that like Harrison Ford obsession phase and where he just went through that time where he record, you know, he made so many, you know, classic films, you know, and, of course, Blade Runner was in there, and I saw it, and didn't necess- necessarily understand it or really. You know, I I just thought it was cool. I thought the gun was really neat, you know, <laughs> right. and um, I just I thought he was badass, but I didn't really necessarily get into kind of understanding the overall themes and the many themes at that. So when I first saw it, I was pretty young, and it wasn't until I was about I was about twenty or so that I revisited it and. Uh, and that time, it was a completely different experience because the very first time I saw it was the theatrical version, you know, with the uh, with the voiceover. And then I was introduced to the the director's cut, which obviously was a, a little bit different uh, take on the film. And I was like, "Wow, this is this is really really cool." And so, yeah, it, it really just kind of grew from there, you know, with the. And then obviously as the, the different releases of, 
of the very same film, but just kind of different takes. It just began just a different obsession and, and finding out just all the layers like an onion. You just peel something away and there's something else um, about this movie that will just that'll just stick with you. And uh, yeah, so but to a very long way around answering your question, I saw it when I was younger like you. And then it was, it was about when I was 20 years old that I revisited the film and uh, discovered, rediscovered it and just saw it in a completely different way than I saw it as a child. Yeah. I think that my re or it's popping back up into the popular imagination uh, was sort of around the time that the final cut version was released. Uh, that was sort I want to say that's like 2007, 2008 was kind of when I, that's roughly the era that I got back into it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it, I mean, it like blew my mind. Um, I think it influenced not only like my, my cinematic, you know, vocabulary, but also, I mean, it influenced my, me in terms of fashion. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, I I really like that sort of cyberpunky gothy kind of aesthetic that, Mm -hmm that was displayed in the film and have been sort of in love with that ever since. Um, but also like music. So right around that time as well, nine inch nails released a new album year zero, which Mm -hmm. was also kind of a futuristic dystopian world and very much, I mean, all he's honestly, you know, always been, you know, delving into the sort of gritty industrial sound, but it was, I don't know. It was really cool. It had a little bit of like a hip hop, feel on some of the songs Mm -hmm. and just I I thought fit perfectly into sort of that time and kind of pushed my my fascination when sort of this like future futuristic gritty aesthetic and so I actually even made a student film version of Blade Runner Mm -hmm. that uh is is my magnum opus I'm gonna put (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna go ahead and put that in the show notes um but I definitely I shared that with you as well I don't know what you're we don't necessarily have to talk about that, but if you if you want to, we'll go ahead and create a, a, a podcast on, <laughs> right. your, on your student film. Certainly, right? We'll delve into that yeah, yeah, yeah. philosophically and so forth. But no, it's really interesting that you even brought up like Nine Inch Nails. I mean, if you were to go ahead and do like a movie pairing with music, um, uh, I think uh, I think Nine Inch Nails would actually be a perfect musical choice to go ahead and pair with uh, with the film Blade Runner. I thought so. I actually used a couple of Nine Inch Nails songs Mm -hmm. um, as the soundtrack to the film, as well as like some of the original Vangelis score. Mm -hmm. But uh, I want to start out with sort of, I guess, when actually talking about the film itself, um, just some sort of miscellaneous kind of interesting things. Um, This is kind of bland, but Alan Ladd was a producer on the film. And obviously, you know, a famous American actor, but uh, also the father of Cheryl Ladd uh, from Charlie's Angels fame, which I thought was pretty interesting tie in pop pop culture wise. Mm -hmm. Um, And what's the relation to Diane Ladd? Uh, Probably that might Diane might be his wife. Well, I thought I thought Diane Ladd was married to. Bruce's sister, daughter, I don't know, something like that. There's probably a family connection. Yeah, yeah, there has to be. But yeah, because I want to say Diane Ladd was married or still is to Bruce Dern. um, So the mother of Laura Dern. But yeah, I think there has to be. But anyway, please continue. (laughs) Um, So the actor that played Tyrell was the bartender in The Shining. 
as well. Was he? Yeah, which I thought was pretty interesting, especially especially given the fact that in the original theatrical release, the ending, I don't know if you recall this, whenever they're driving away at the very ending, they're driving, it's like that sort of mountain pass mm-hmm. and there's like trees and whatnot. That is actually footage from The Shining. <laughs> It's Which is really, yeah. it's weird. Like, yeah. what? <laughs> I yeah. don't know how that really happened, but. Um, so what else? Then we have, obviously, a, a young Edward James almost as Gaff. Yep. Um, Gaff. I w- you know what I d- have not found out is if he actually did the origami. Oh, if he did it himself. Right. If he I'm kinda, now I'm, I'm super curious. I'm going to have to I think to look this up. I mean, he's pretty intense. I don't know. I mean, the just the, the unicorn one by itself. I'm like, man, I don't. I don't know, uh, but it'd be impre- pretty impressive. It's just another layer of like how how epic that actor is if he if you went ahead and created this. Um, so the actress that played Zora, Joanne Cassidy, she was in. Um, I'm sure she's been in other stuff, but mm-hmm. what where she stands out for me is she played Brenda's mother in the show Six Feet Under. And if you remember, Brenda's parents were kind of like artsy very eclectic people she was the mother now i'm trying to remember which one brenda was uh, it uh was, was it the oldest was it peter his wife so the the one that became kind of, or the one that was kind of like upset like the the um not the not the green chick that he hooks up with later on but the one that was kind of um like uh what do you call it uh, basically obsessed with sex uh yeah yeah okay yeah, so her like, okay um, so that was pretty interesting. And I remember Joanne like Joanne Cassidy. Yeah, I remember like seeing her. And I was like, wait, a minute, she looks really fucking familiar. And then I like look on IMDb, and I was like, oh, no wonder she was Zora. Um, but yeah, I guess that's sort of all the the uh, miscellaneous facts, mm-hmm. the fun facts, if you will, that I can think. Of. Do you, Do you have any that I do? You bring so up? what I like. Uh, so when I think of like uh, Joanne Cassidy, I I remember her uh, really as the. And it wasn't until I was watching it the other day. I was like, holy cow. But the the woman in um, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the, uh, so. Oh, yeah, I think I know who. You- yeah, so she ran the, kind of like the the little, uh, the little bar or diner thing there. That's right. Okay. And I want to say, I'm, I could be completely wrong here, but I, uh just to throw out like my obscure '90s uh, teen uh, cinema, but I want to say that she had a fair, fairly small role in the film uh, "Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead." Okay. So, yes, yeah, yeah, actually, she was. Yeah, she was. Or wait, ah, uh, we'll have to look this up. I think it, she kind of, yeah, she kind of resembles that lady, but I think it's a different actress. Okay, I'm, fair enough. I'm not, I'm not 100 sure. We'll have to, yeah, we'll have to consult the, uh, the, <laughs> you know, the. The IMDb that you know Bible that it is right. So, I'd kind of like to start off or move on to acting, as that's kind of like my least. That's what I have the least to say about dig into, other than just to say that I thought Sean Young was absolutely brilliant in this mm-hmm. film. Probably her best acting, other than. <laughs> I mean, it. Ha- I mean, it, it, it's basically the Mount Rushmore for her, right? You right. got this movie and then Ace Ventura, right? <laughs> exactly. I, mean, yeah, I was going to bring up Lieutenant <laughs> Einhorn next. So. <laughs> or Finkel, Finkel is, yeah. Ray Finkel. Um, but yeah, I thought she was phenomenal. She had just such a like, 
you know, she was just so vulnerable mm-hmm. and feminine and her, you know, obviously she just looked stunningly beautiful. Um, and sort of the, the retro era, like the very structured costuming and her hair up. I think, um, mm-hmm. Scott had actually said that he based the look on Hedy Lamar. Okay. But yeah, I thought, I thought she was great. I thought that her, obviously, you know, the scene where Deckard is, is putting her through the Voight comp test mm-hmm. at the Terrell headquarters, she played that superbly. But where I really thought she shined the most, like her best scene in the entire film was, so they had returned to Deckard's apartment just after she had killed, was it, was it Leon is his name? Yeah. Yeah, she kills Leon. Leon. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so she's she's standing there. This is also one of the, my probably my favorite, maybe my favorite shot in the film as well. So she's kind of crying, and um, Deckard's trying to console her, and is like, "Uh, oh, you know, it's all part. Shake, are you shaking? It's it's all part of the business." Mm-hmm. She's like, "I'm not in the business. I am the business." Yep. And that was just wow. Yeah, that was incredible. And then the the scene itself is so you've got this like flashing light that's kind of going in and out from behind her in a sort of a profile shot, and she's crying and sort of just you can her mascara is running. It just looks incredible. And then uh, let's see, of course, Rutger Hauer, brilliant. Yeah. Um, what's funny too is I was listening to an interview with with Ridley Scott and. They actually cast Rutger Hauer without him, without it ever having met him. Okay. And had he had he been in anything at that time? I'm not sure. I'd have to go look that up. But so he shows up in costume, wearing like some pink satin pants. He had already dyed his hair blonde, mm-hmm. a bleach blonde, just like in the film itself, and sort of this crazy garb as in terms of what he thought. <laughs> Futurism was look like right <laughs> looked like and so forth. But let's see who else. Um, let's see who else had a really solid role. I feel like Terrell as well mm-hmm. was really well done. Um, I think or even Sebastian. Um, yeah, Sanderson. But my favorites were probably Rut- Rutger Hauer, Sean Young, I mean, and then the actor that played Terrell. Yeah, I mean, for me, the movie is, I mean, it's Rutger Hauer for me. I mean, as much as I love Harrison Ford, and I think he was perfect, but Rutger Hauer, I mean, he, he uh, I mean, at the end, you know, when, we, we, when he mentioned a little bit ago about, like, why did he save him? Why did he save him? Him saving him at the end, I mean, it just adds that little extra layer of complexity and just the way that Rutger Hauer just carries that scene. I mean, the... It, it, it's it's brilliant and um yeah and oh actually now it's funny that you mentioned that because from that role when i saw it was really when i was really young and then juxtapose it to like the movie that i saw like right afterward uh which was a little movie called lady hawk and uh he plays a good guy in that movie but it's just kind of like this kind of um little sci-fi fantasy movie that takes place in the old days um Anyway, I'm not going to get into the whole thing about the movie Lady Hawk, but Rutger, Rutger Hauer is in that movie, and he plays kind of a good guy. Um, and yeah, I just I was like, holy, holy shit, this guy he, he's brilliant, just absolutely brilliant. And the performance that he had, especially in Blade Runner, it just it's just great. I love Roy. Roy is just one of my favorite 
favorite villains slash tragic heroes really um in in fairly modern cinema and i just i just one of my favorite characters yeah i had uh written a paper in grad school where i argued that roy was sort of the was the actual hero of the, of the film and i think deckard deckard is sort sort of more of a stand-in for the audience he's sort of the everyman mm-hmm. um that we can sort of align ourselves the audience with but uh obviously the tears and rain speech at the end of the film you know was i mean wow mm-hmm. <laughs> just spectacular and supposedly that was primarily improvised by by rutger i think there was like a loose structure but he improvised certain aspects of that speech at the end mm-hmm. i didn't i was not aware of that but in in terms of acting i'm trying to think i don't you know there wasn't a, there I mean, wasn't a lot of other because even i mean you had some big names at the you know at the time because i mean mm at walsh was a big name at that time you know obviously he was doing uh, a lot of things, and then he, you know, he would go on to kind of Coen Brothers uh, acclaim and a couple other films that you know that he would work with them on. Yeah, like Blood, Blood Simple, right? Blood Simple, um, Raising Arizona, uh, another movie or two, I'm sure. But so you had him. Obviously, Harrison Ford was was a monumental name at that time, and it was kind of at the, the beginning of the Daryl Hannah, um, you know, or just supermodel at the time, but. Um, yeah, I mean, what are your thoughts on her? Like in, in terms of the, uh, the performance that she had, because it was, I don't know. I mean, like when I, when I think back, just batshit crazy <laughs> is really the words that come to mind when I think about, think about that and just like the, the spray painting and just, yeah, just, just in the hair and kind of like the little mannequin ask, uh, aspect and, but yeah, what are your thoughts on like, as far as what she brought to the table for the film? I think that she she displayed she really did a great job of portraying there was there was a vulnerability but also a danger to her you know what I mean it, there was like a very uneasy feeling especially in those scenes at JF Sebastian's home it's kind of like I, I feel like Sebastian um like she he backs into her and like she's sitting on a table and she puts her arms and legs around him, and she's kind of giving Roy these glances, and it's just very unnerving, mm-hmm. I think. So she actually did a really great job. And what was funny, too, is I was looking at some production um, videos and so forth, and they were showing that... <laughs> so that they the famous scene, of course, where she attacks Deckard at <laughs> Sebastian's house, they actually had... Originally, they had a gymnast come, and there was like a double for her. But they had Scott had done so many takes, like the gymnast was completely worn out mm-hmm. by like half of the day. So they found a male gymnast to do to stand in and sort of, and you can sort of tell in some of the scene <laughs> a little bit if you look really closely, because uh, of course he's like a, a squattier frame, and she's, right. of course she's long and lithe and so forth. But you can kind of tell. Mm-hmm. I also found out that so whenever Deckard shoots her and kills her, so they had uh, they put down some sort of like plastic underneath them to keep them from like being bruised and and injured from thrashing mm-hmm. around like that, which is obviously one of the more memorable uh, deaths in the film. Yeah, but I think I oh, got they're all really intense. Yeah, 
yeah. Um, I don't know. I'd like when I'm, I'm just thinking like the death scenes and just yeah, Leon. Um, that whole scene. Uh, just to go back, you know, just talking about other characters. Um, I completely, I've completely lost his name, but the actor that plays uh, Leon. Uh, you know, he's been in multitude, or at least he was in a multitude of films, certainly back in the eighties, but I loved him. And, um, just like the, well, we really learn a little bit about replicants and their, their whole thing of empathy and how he, like, he fails right at the beginning, you know, by finding out he can't, he can't save the animal. You're not helping. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why? You know, um, I, it, it, it it's, I love I loved him, and then the like his death scene is when when you know he's smacking Harrison Ford around a couple times. <laughs> that is so funny. Did yeah. you notice that? I thought it was so like like the way that he backhands him is really like it's so funny. It's like kind of robot. I mean, obviously it would be perfect, but it feels ro- very robotic. Mm-hmm. Like his hand is so straight. Yep. I don't know. It's just it's always stood out to me. And I've always thought that was just it looks really funny to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. It, it it's. That and I just like the fact that he's just making, um, you know, just Harrison Ford just an absolute nothing, you know, just smacking around like, you know, he's just completely irrelevant. But he gets his I, ass kicked the whole film. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> By everyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is great because that's, you know, his whole purpose is to, you know, retire <laughs> them and he just gets dominated throughout the entire film. But, um, and then obviously Sean Young saves his ass by, you know, shooting. Leon on the back of the head, back of the head, I believe. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. What about a uh, Zora's death? I thought that was. I actually have some some info on that too. Ooh. Uh, what do you have? Okay, so the famous clear raincoat that she puts on mm-hmm. had a practical purpose. It just wasn't for aesthetics. So you know how she crashes into multiple plates of glass. Yes. So obviously in film, and for those of you who don't know, there's something called sugar glass, which is um, a, a type of glass that's not real. It's it's made to break very easily. It's very thin, um, used in a lot of productions. And so, but obviously not like 100% safe. Like there's mm-hmm. still danger. It's still glass. It's There's still sharpness and, and so forth. So the jacket was just protection for her. That's interesting, yeah. Uh, but to answer, like the, I, I didn't know that. I mean, honestly, when it comes to this film, as much as I appreciate, it, I haven't, I've never really studied a lot of like the, like nuances and like behind the scenes. So I mean, a lot of this is gonna be really, really new. So I, I'm, yeah, that's pretty awesome. I had no idea about about the, the kind of the, the dual intention, if you will, of of her jacket. But I don't know. I I always found her death really, really sad and. Um, it just kind—I of, don't know. It kind of it, it, it got me, and it, it affected me. I think more. Uh, it made me feel uh, for the uh, the replicants, and you know, and I don't know. It just added a layer. I mean, it felt like in that moment, it was kind of like a reverse of like ter- uh, Terminator, <laughs> um, where you know, like it it was uh, Harrison Ford as kind of like the you know the the Terminator and. Uh, you know, she was, whether it was Sarah Connor or whoever, I mean, she felt very, very like human and the person going after was, you know, very like robotic and just, just a murderer. And yeah, so, I mean, that's what the way that that death has affected me anyway, what I, what I got from it. 
I thought too, though, that in the aftermath, I, I think that there is a little bit of, I don't know, regret or there's like, there's a little bit of subtlety in, in Harrison Ford's performance there. I, I think he sort of did feel a little bit guilty and about having, having executed her like that. Um, another fun fact from the production is that apparently this too, there's, it was another stand in that they just put like a shitty wig that didn't even match Joanne Cassidy very well. And so like the stunt actor or whomever, mm-hmm. and supposedly you can pay, can kind of catch that as well if you pay close attention. But I think they did a pretty solid job of editing so that unless you're like really looking for it again, right. similar to the yeah. uh, Daryl Hannah scene that you can't really catch it. But once you know it's there, it's probably like sort of along those lines. You can't stop (laughs) noticing it. Any last thoughts in terms of performances? Okay. So yeah, when it comes to the, the overall performances, I, I, once again, I I felt that everybody did a a solid job and I don't think there was anything that like stood out, um, to me, but I did, I, I, um, just mentioned kind of in passing, but the, the actor that played, um, Sebastian, the, I don't know. I, I, I love that character and whether, uh, what was a TV show? He was on a TV show back in the eighties and, um, just kind of, kind of a little bit of, you know, uh, <laughs> kind of a just diminutive type, you know, character. But, uh, I thought, he, I thought he was great. And I, there, there wasn't any, there weren't any standouts or anything that I thought that, that they were they were bad. I felt I felt across the board it was just a really really well executed in terms of like an acting performance. So on that, two thumbs up across the board. This is not quite the acting, but I, one thing about Sebastian's character was his sort of genetically engineered menagerie was really creepy. Like the two little the two little guys, one dresses Napoleon, <laughs> and the other is sort of like a, in a Kaiser helmet. Like I. I don't know. That was just kind of weirded me out. Like I felt, I felt wrong. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I felt like this is this is too weird. This is it just feels like I felt sympathy for those two little guys just running around, kind of like you know. I want to know more about like what is like how much agency did they have? Or because it seems weird. They're kind of like in other scenes, they're sitting there just not really participating. Mm-hmm. But they're like their eyes are flitting back and forth. Yeah, you know what I mean? there's and and I don't even know if this was necessarily ever part of the intentions or anything. But um, have you ever done any like research or like uh, looking into? Again, I haven't ever studied, but the, the like the the presence of like birds and the whole idea of kind of uh, being like caged and even even the way that they kind of frame uh, certain scenes when you have Sebastian, you know, like even toward the end there's um where it looks like he himself is caged and uh, because i think there was like even an ostrich or something like uh and then his chessboard which when we talk about themes yeah, i really owls yeah that's mm-hmm. true okay so like when i when i think of those specific I, I just feel of those as kind of just creations uh you know that that they have no life you know i mean they're they're kind of like stuck in this world as well and you just see their eyes kind of just observing things almost like they're almost trapped kind yeah. of like a like a bird as well so i don't know if, if i'm on to anything but that was just one of one of the the things that i that i, I always felt anyway um then yeah 
Yeah, I think you might be onto something too because I noticed they do um, the scene that we mentioned earlier where uh, Rachel is first introduced. We do have a couple of cutaways back to the owl's eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe just emphasizing a little bit about the uh, um, the artificiality mm-hmm. of them. Because I, from what I remember hearing, um, I mean, this is a world where like basically all animal life that everything is extinct, and like the first thing to go were like owls and birds, and so, um, yeah, yeah. I, don't know. I you know I forgot to mention this, and because it was sort of hard to structure this too, because I'm thinking about like some of these scenes are both like I want to talk about sort of the performance, but also the the philosophical implications. Um, but one of my favorite scenes is whenever Sebastian, Roy forces Sebastian to visit Terrell. And it's sort of the, the meet your maker moment mm-hmm. that I thought was just exquisitely done. Um, great performance. That might be the best, one of the best acting moments as well sort of the conversation between Terrell and Roy going back and forth. Um, There's sort of that, like, and I'll get into this later on. Um, You know what I mean? There's sort of that Nietzschean vibe to it, like man destroys God, Mm -hmm. Um, as well as the, I'm trying to think, it's like almost like a Paradise Lost vibe too, especially with the amount of candlelight that's in Terrell's bedroom. Yeah. Yeah, the I mean it's it's my 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 favorite my my favorite scene is and how does he get in there? You know, basically he you know he he checkmates uh, you know Tyrell into to letting him you know uh, Sebastian bring him up and and then Roy checkmates uh, Tyrell <laughs> in a more literal sense. But and are you familiar? And I, I, yeah, I mean, I really don't want to necessarily jump ahead, or you know, if this is something you already had, but like talking about about the 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 chess match that they were playing, um, it was a take on like probably like the most famous chess matches in like history, the the Immortal Game. Oh yeah, okay. I I read a little bit about this. I, I had read that actually that when Ridley Scott was asked that it was just like sort of a coincidence. That's that's really fascinating because but I mean, who knows? I mean, then again, you know, you had two screenwriters yeah. working on this mm-hmm. on this film, so maybe one of them put that in there. We use that as an inspiration. And what? Because what I love about if you go ahead and utilize, you know, just talk about, you know, as um, you know, it, because it really does lend itself really well when you the, the, that that specific match where like the guy essentially won without any of his key pieces on the board, right? And and then you have Roy without any of his pieces, you know, he's lost all of his all of his guys oh, and and then he goes goes to meet the king, you know, and uh, okay. um and you know, he you know, he meets his maker and he, you know, he kills him <laughs> in essence. Uh so it's just one of those things that I really really uh, responded to it and just thought it was brilliant and just um that and just the 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 history of that that immortal chess match which is just one of my favorite things I, like i said when I, when i kind of rediscovered this i was going through like the, this whole like chess nerdy phase and 
um, is one of the pieces of the film and kind of like the symbolism that I really, really fell in love with. So, but yeah, that's nice. I definitely like that read on it. Um, mm-hmm. what I think is interesting here as well with this scene is the difference between the theatrical release, eh, theatrical release and the final cut. So I actually prefer in this case, this is one area that I prefer the theatrical release because whenever he kills Terrell, he says, or what does he say? He's like, I want more life fucker. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. But in the final cut, then he changed it to, I want more life father. Right. But I don't know. Something about that fucker was great. And like Rutger Hauer delivered the line mm-hmm. with such like, I don't, you know what I mean? Such anger. And like, you know what I mean? You know, I just yeah. could like really identify with sort of that anger at your creator. Yeah, no, I mean the entirely different different take on it from the theatrical to the final uh, the final cut. What I also love about um, just because I guess we haven't really even kind of even covered. We're talking about Blade Runner as an idea, but I mean there are, there are what four four different versions of of this same movie, and all of them you can go ahead and make a case of, you know is the best version depending on you know how you want to look at it and. Um, but the, when you go with the theatrical, that's one of the, probably like the, when people like talk about the film, that's one of the, 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 the most, uh, like taken away like moments was <laughs> that, that scene with the, with the fucker versus father, uh, bit and it's, it's classic and, but it does, yeah, well, obviously changing it to father completely changes, changes the, the scene. I don't know if it's even necessary to even, I think you get an idea without him saying father, you know, what what it's really about. So the, the little fuck you father, you know, uh, is perfectly, you know, clear, I would say. Yeah. I thought it just conveyed that just the anger, the resentment of your creator so much more effectively and was just like, ah, Rutger Hauer was just, just so vicious mm-hmm. with the way that he said fucker, you know what I mean? It had like a bite to it, mm-hmm. to the dialogue. But, uh, I don't have any, any more on acting. Do you want to maybe, Stop. On acting, yeah, but we can go ahead and move on. I think, yeah. Let's uh, let's talk about the writing of the film a little bit, and uh, we'll. I'll start off just by acknowledging the the two screenwriters. We have Hampton Fancher and David Peoples, and I think uh, Hampton Fancher was the original screenwriter, and then they brought in the studio brought in David Peoples, and so they sort of worked on it in tandem. Mm-hmm. Weirdly. <laughs> I think there was a little bit of conflict there. I think um, what I had read and, and heard is that the studio felt that Fancher's screenplay was a little bit more, was too sort of, like it gave the audience, it didn't give the audience enough. Like they wanted a more simple story mm-hmm. than what he had given them. And he had something super cerebral. Was his more like what the... Do you know it was more like with the the um, like the book, the original, the original like information? Is that like what his version was? Was a little bit more like? like I I, that? I don't think so. I had I've heard that Hampton Fancher didn't even like the book at all. Uh, but I, yeah, I guess we I forgot to even mention that. So the obviously the the film is based on Philip K. Dick's classic novel. Do androids dream of electric sheep? Have you have you read that book? I have not. I have not. I have not either. I haven't. Um, shout out to uh, uh, my wife though. When I was saying that we were going to watch that, she's like, "Oh yeah, it's based on blah 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 blah." I'm like, "I'm like, how did you like retain <laughs> that?" You know, right. and I mean, now I mean, obviously, I know, I, I know, but I mean, we haven't even 
don't even know if we've ever even discussed Blade Runner in, in, in length, but that's one of the things that she's always retained is, you know, what the, what the original work is. I think she took like a, like a, a dystopian like um, literature class and they watched. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. I want to take that class. <laughs> it, it would be great. Um, and I think, so they would read, read things like that and then see the film. So very um, interesting. Yeah. So I, I honestly, I know nothing about the book. Um, yeah. I wish it could be more use in, in, in being able to kind of like critique it. And, right. And, yeah. I, ha- I haven't read it either. I did try, I looked into, there are some actual graphic novels based on I think the more so the book but they were it was more like a prequel to Blade Runner and mm-hmm. not I was I was looking for something that was more of like a, a graphic interpretation of do androids than anything and I did not find that yet but mm-hmm. I, I think there is something out there but I'm not sure But let's see. Um, there were some interesting dialogue thrown in here and there. Like one of the str- one of the pieces of dialogue that I love, but that doesn't really like have any. It doesn't fit. It feels like it's just kind of cobbled in there. Is whenever they go to visit. Uh, so it's Roy and Leon go to I think it's Chu to yeah. the guy the the he designs the eyes for replicants. And he quotes, it's like this, it's a fiery, the angels fell, deep thunder rolled around their shores, burning with the fires of work. Mm-hmm. Like, what the fuck is this? Right. <laughs> what the fuck is this replicant doing, quoting? So this is, this quote is loosely based on a line uh, adapted from William Blake's poem, America, a prophecy. Right. And don't the, and doesn't, instead of like fall, isn't it? like rise isn't there like there's like um so roy actually kind of like gets it backwards right uh it it isn't fell fell at all it's rise correct i I don't i didn't find the original okay because i I, I didn't look into it but i think that you're right yeah i think that's one of context i think exactly it was just kind of like a you know like a took it entirely different different take on what the what the poem was about but um again yeah it's it's a classic line of course it you know comes from william blake but um, yeah, killer. Just <laughs> apparently, somewhat also ad libbed or what you know, improvised by Rutger Hauer a little to some extent. Mm-hmm. But I'm a huge William Blake fan as well. Are you love love William Blake? Really like any of the British romanticists mm-hmm. for the most part, other than sadly to say Wordsworth, who is like probably the maybe the eh, he's not the most famous, but he's definitely up there. Um, yeah. But I actually like, so William Blake also did paintings. Have you ever seen any of his paintings? They're really cool. So the film Red Dragon in the, uh, what is that? The, uh, like the Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. The, 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 the prequel, if you will. So that was the Red Dragon painting that he eats was done by William Blake. He did a lot of these. He used a lot of, I guess, imagery from Christianity, but he had a more, I don't know how to describe it. He used a lot of the imagery and idea, but he was more like, he wasn't quite so Christian. It was more of like some type of spiritual weirdness going on. But he's got a great one, uh, The Ancient of Days. I recommend taking a look at that sometime. It's really, it's really cool. 
No, well, I, I honestly I had no idea that William Blake even did paintings. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other standout lines. Um, I mean, I think the, I think the, the line is what it's quite a thing to live in fear, isn't yeah. it? Right. That's I mean, exactly that's, what I have next in my notes. Yeah. That's funny. I mean, that's what that's what the movie's in essence all about, you know. So, um, and I think it's said by a couple. I think Leon is the first one to say it, yeah, right? And absolutely. Then, and then Roy says it to him as well. Another one of my favorites is It's too bad she won't live. But then again, <laughs> who does? Who does? <laughs> yep. That was great. And then obviously the uh the ending, the uh tears and rain speech that Roy does mm-hmm. as well. I feel like I'm leaving something out though. Um uh Leon, uh let me tell you something about my mother. And then, <laughs> uh, then he shoots the guy. And that's basically how I feel, too. Like, you know, you want to talk about my mom? Let me tell you something about my mom. <laughs> Boom. Yep. Don't talk about my mom. Can your mother sew? Boom. <laughs> Get her to sew that. <laughs> uh, you know what's funny, too, is I, now that you mentioned that scene, something that has always stood out to me is the way that the actor that p- portrays Holden delivers that line. Can you tell me... Because he's like very like deliberately saying the things that come to mind when you think about your mother. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm with Leon. I would have shot that guy too. I, <laughs> I did not like him at all. I also like. I just get when he gets shot up, he just goes through the wall and just. That was such an. I always thought that was such an awkward scene, and I, I need to go back and watch again because it always felt like a weird continuity thing mm-hmm. the way that it looks because i get like i'm guessing so i watched the final cut earlier and that it looks like so he shoots him under the table first and he kind of goes back mm-hmm. and then he stands up and like shoots him and he flies through the wall but it was i don't know that there's something awkward with the editing in that scene oh it is always it's, kind of bugged me it's very well at the, by the i mean maybe in what was it 1980 that looked pretty intense you know and it was like, whoa. And now it, there is something kind of like off-putting about how, how strange. I mean, just, it, it, there, yeah, there, it, it's not, it's just a weird turn of events. And just the way that it's filmed and just like going through the wall and it's kind of jumpy. And it, it, it's, yeah, it doesn't, when you look, I mean, it, it just seems kind of dated right. for something that was just supposed to, I don't know. Um, yeah. But I'm with you. I'm with you. Because Leon is, he's seated and he shoots him and then he's it's kind of almost like, immediately standing up. I don't know. It's, it's weird. It's like, yeah. Cause it's you like first fucked something up. There exactly. It's like kind of like that, you know, like, like a, like an under the table, like Greedo type thing. Right. right. You know? Uh, and then, yeah, he's standing up and then he shoots him and then like the chair like rolls back through the wall and it's, yeah. And any final thoughts in terms of, writing i i don't have much else to, to um, delve I, guess, into. I guess i guess when we if we're going to talk about it, we should probably talk a little bit about the theatrical version and then the kind of like the the narration because it is such oh, a, yeah. a big call. it is a large part to the of to the film and and obviously the the voiceover work gives it a little bit more 
of that that film noir uh, aspect because you take rid of it. I mean, you get rid of it. Sure, there are certain elements about it, but the the voiceover really makes it feel kind of like those classic, um, like Humphrey Bogart type. You know, um, yeah, those those classic film noir style films, and so that's one of the things I always took away you know, took away from it when you when you have the narration versus. And granted, the, the there's been a lot of discussion on it, and my take on it. I'm not the biggest. I'm not the biggest fan of it. I'm. I think we've talked a little bit about uh, voiceovers, and if if you're telling me something that I already know, I'm not really intrigued. Or if you're just telling me what your thoughts are, I'm not really interested. I'm more than anything. I'm. I'm I want to hear. I like to hear kind of the opposite. If you're telling me something, I want to see it being completely in contrast to everything right, that I'm okay. saying. So, uh, but I yeah. So I've, regarding the the writing i think i think we should talk maybe a little bit about about that voiceover because it is different and a lot of people have different takes on what their thoughts are on it i'm not a fan of the voiceover obviously so the big story is that allegedly this was something that was done in post production the studio thought the film was too difficult and challenging to follow and so they had harrison ford go back and and do the voiceover Supposedly, he thought it was sh- a shitty idea, didn't want to do it, and phoned it in, mm-hmm. which I sort of get the feel for. I, I don't yeah. like the voiceover at all. Mm-hmm. I think that it just his tone of voice just didn't work. I'm not always against something like voiceover in films. I know that's always like the big thing in screenwriting is no, vo- you know, voiceover is cheap. It's cheating. It's it's mm-hmm. weak. You know, show, don't tell is big when it comes to writing. But, um, you know, it's funny, like my number, my other, you know, film I had debated on discussing was Apocalypse Now, which I think, which obviously has a shitload yeah. voiceover that I think is well done. Like, it's, yeah, I mean, Martin Sheen just has a great, like his voice is perfect. Yeah, I mean, there, there's good voiceover is great voiceover and it adds a lot to the film. In the case of Blade Runner, I don't know if we're really getting anything and I apologize. I'm, I'm more. I, I've seen uh, the final cut far more than I've seen the, oh, yeah. you know, Same. the theatrical. Same. But I don't really think that I get too much from the voiceover at all. That re- in terms of what it brings to the story. I mean, it, it's other than just in the literal sense of hey, this is what's going on, and you know, with the Tyrell and blah 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 blah, and you know, it's just I don't know. I I don't I don't get more from it yeah it's kind of shitty exposition that we don't really need exactly because he's talking about his wife oh that she called me sushi before we got divorced um he says he's not worried about gaff because gaff is looking for a promotion Mm -hmm. Uh, whenever he meets with bryant um he kind of mentions that's you know he's the sort of guy that would use the Mm n-word back in the day because he kind of refers to the replicants as skin job which is a derogatory element which i don't think they like necessarily tapped into i think blade runner 2049 did a lot better job of like communicating that that um the othering so to speak of the replicants yeah because i he was was he i don't recall any other character you using that that phrase in the film but i'm probably wrong but i don't yeah no one else does that i recall but yeah i mean that's for the writing, I mean that—that's it. And 
I'm, I'm curious because it, it seems, and I'm very well, maybe completely wrong here, but with the, with the whole idea, uh, if Deckard is replicant, is he not a replicant? The, and you know, the writers have had their, their thoughts on it. Harrison Ford has his thoughts on it. Ridley Scott has his thoughts on it. And, and if we're to believe kind of Ridley Scott as it's his, you know, final vision, I don't think that the voiceover really lends itself well that he is yeah. a replicant. And I think that's what really Scott has always really kind of envisioned is that he is, he's never really made it like, like in your face. He wanted to be a little bit ambiguous, but as I, from what I remember, the screenwriter didn't believe Deckard was a replicant. Harrison Ford and M.M. Walsh didn't believe that he was a replicant, but really Scott and a couple other editors and, and what have you. So when you go ahead and utilize the the voiceover work, I don't I don't I don't recall anything about it that really seems that it lends itself well to him being a replicant. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was mostly the only er, the only bit of voiceover that I sort of thought maybe contributed a little bit to the story was when he's discussing why the replicants would need photographs. Oh, yeah. But yeah. again, like the way that he delivered it, mm-hmm. sort of, that was maybe the worst part. Like I think it could have, if he would have been trying. Right. <laughs> yeah. Trying harder or something. And that's entirely something else, you know, that, yeah, that you can go ahead and you take from that. Absolutely. So that's, yeah, but that's, that's really all I've got for writing. Okay. So next I want to discuss the cinematography, the visual style. In short, amazing. <laughs> right? Just, ah, oh, there's, the whole film is just so incredibly done. It's fun to look at, right? Yes, I mean, it just, is. just I mean, across the board, everything, whether, you know, the lights or the, um, yeah, just, it, it's, it's just, it's a beautiful film to stare at. And the cinematography is just, it's gorgeous. Of course, Ridley Scott, very much known for his visual style, creating visually stunning films that somewhat lack substance, and this this <laughs> charge is often levied against Blade Runner. But the DP on the sh- on the show was Jordan Cronenweth, and it's funny. I was like looking up, looking at his uh, resume. Mm-hmm. Nothing all that spectacular, other than this film, which I thought was weird. Interesting. Do you uh, recall any of the other, any anything else that he's done? Not off the top of my head. No worries, yeah. I think there was at least one other weird sort of early 90s film that sort of stood out, but nothing like, nothing as well-known or as impactful as Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. A couple of cool things. Uh, obviously, so this film was released in, what, 1982, I believe? So, no CGI, all done with miniatures mm-hmm. and practical effects and matte paintings. A lot of matte paintings. A lot of it was shot on the back lot at the studio. Interesting. And they repurposed quite a few, or at least a couple of locations. Um, so we've mentioned the scene with where Rachel is introduced at Terrell headquarters. So that mm-hmm. room also doubled as Terrell's bedroom later on in the in the film. Mm-hmm. 
what I th- so the aesthetic of the film is oh wow it really stands out to me later on or even like at uh at JF Sebastian's the everything's wet and damp and like grimy mm-hmm. and even more so like whenever they're on the top of the building there's debris everywhere there's and it's wet everywhere exactly, yeah. yeah and this is LA right where there's yeah. <laughs> where it never where it never rains exactly so just a really gritty wet nasty grimy sort of vibe to the to the film which i thought was in many ways you know to contrast it to blade runner 2049 was a much cleaner cleaner visual style than mm-hmm. this and a lot brighter or at least more color now and i i need to see 2049 again but where that that didn't take place in LA, right? Because there is a they go to LA to find him. Is that correct? Or I think Deckard is supposed to be in Las Vegas. Oh, I think okay. They spend time in San Diego. Maybe that's what. Okay, all right. Because um, yeah, I mean, with the I mean, the whole thing is with like pollution and people are being for. I mean. Again, for those that haven't necessarily seen Blade Runner, I mean, you're you're set in a world in the year 2019 where uh, a lot of people are essentially being forced to live off off colony, right? I mean, like or off world, off yeah. world and go to different colonies and those that can afford it, exactly. And we've kind of had these uh, these androids, or kind of for lack of a better term, kind of like fallen angels that come back to Earth and. We need, and we've got this guy that's a cop. That's his job is to kill these uh, these robots, and they've been outlawed on Earth. They've been, yeah, and so he just chases them around, and and everything is crazy. So whether um, you know uh, wars or pollution and everything that's just caused everything to deteriorate, we're set in this world where yeah, everything it's seemingly always nighttime, and <laughs> right, and um. Yeah, it's just every, you know, it's just, it's just, it's a shitty place. I don't know if, like, if there was a war that, like, Japan had won the war, because the, just the, um, the overall, like, I mean, just with, whether it was, like, the sushi and just the, um, the, the giant, like, wall hologram, and there's just kind of, like, this very strong, like, Asian presence to the, I, I thought it took, it was just Chinatown, but it's not. It's just, it's what LA has become. I think some of this was inspired by at the time during the 80s, it was thought that Japan would overtake the U.S. as the, you know, the economy in Japan was booming. And so I think there was like that played sort of a a role in in that portrayal Mm -hmm. aesthetically. But uh, obviously for me, one of the standout scenes, we've mentioned it, two or three times already is the introduction of Rachel. Wow. Uh, <laughs> my favorite shot is whenever he Deckard is doing the Voight comp test and she, she has the cigarette and she takes a puff and then like releases the smoke. And it's just, there's a big bit of smoke in her mm-hmm. face and then it kind of clears out and just, Wow, it's a beautiful. That's yeah. an all-time favorite shot. I want it. I want an art print of this. I want like a high-quality photograph of that, just like blown up, giant. Yeah, 
it's a it's a beautiful scene, uh, beautiful shot, beautiful scene. Everything the way that they're they're framed, and uh, and then even like you know with the with the glass looking into the eye. I mean, it's just it's beautiful. It's just across the board. It like I said, if you haven't seen this movie, just every shot is just something really really beautiful to look at. And then you, I mean, and just every every shot with Roy and the way that he's framed in the movie is just it's yeah just beautiful like shot of a fallen angel all throughout the film and i just love it so ridley scott says that okay do you recall the the way that the replicants eyes and particularly i guess rachel they have that golden sort of glow to them Mm -hmm. so he said how they achieved this was to attach a mirror and then they had another light so they were like bouncing light off the mirror into the the iris of, mm-hmm. the, of, you know, I guess Sean, Sean Young's eyes. And that's how they created that effect. Yeah. Uh, I think there was a scene where they even, it almost looked like they were doing the same thing to Harrison Ford later in the movie as well. They absolutely did. Okay. Um, I think it's, it's like right before the, uh, it's that same sequence after Rachel has killed Leon. Mm-hmm. And they're back at Deckard's apartment. And so he comes up behind her. Um, I forget what he even says. I even have like the dialogue <laughs> written down here somewhere. <laughs> I'll see if I can find it. Uh, yeah, I can't find it. But it's right around, actually, it's right around the time that, no. It's that same sequence, yeah, because Deckard says, you know, it's all, are you shaking? It's it's in the business or whatever. And she's like, I'm not in the business. I am the business. Mm-hmm. Another one of my favorite scenes that you mentioned, Roy. And, you know, maybe that's sort of the tie-in for that bastardized William Blake quote is the imagery of the fallen angels, the replicants as the fallen angels, mm-hmm. which sort of, again, ties into that sort of paradise lost right yeah vibe to it mm-hmm. um but it's it's early on in the film it is i don't even know what the significance is. it's so weird too with the editing here as well because we have this profile shot of roy and we have sort of the glimmering light and he's sort of got this kind of smirk on his face like he's looking down and he just looks i don't know he looks maniacal he looks he looks wild but i love it yeah yeah, no, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about, and I apologize. I just went somewhere else for a second and, <laughs> and thinking when we were talking about just kind of because there are there there's a series of kind of jumpy jumpy moments or even jumpy themes and things that kind of go around and um, it was almost like you know the fact that there are like four different versions to this film. It's like it's never really known one thing of what it was supposed to be, and there I think there are just a lot of different ideas, a lot of different themes where the movie especially if you watch different versions, there there makes it entirely different films and you can have entirely different perspectives and philosophies of what you want to make of that film. And I don't know if any of that's really intentional or if it's just people not necessarily knowing what this movie is. But that's just a thought I just had at that moment. Yeah, definitely. I think with the two screenwriters as well, like, because I think there was somewhat of, I had heard, you know, you mentioned this earlier about, Deckard being a replicant and I there was like I someone had 
said that this was sort of a misunderstanding between all three, like the two screenwriters and Ridley Scott. Mm-hmm. That like so, there was some bit of dialogue or something that they misinterpreted, and then it sort of became a, took a life of its own. And then Ridley Scott kind of liked it and liked the ambiguity of it. Mm-hmm. And I know we've mentioned 20, 20, uh, 2049, and that's one of the things I actually liked about, I mean, I liked a lot of things about 2049, but uh, is the fact that if you're in the camp of Deckard is a replicant, or if you're in the camp that, no, he's, he's, he's a human, you can go ahead and make that argument one way or another, you know, by because they never really address it, you know, as far as is he or isn't he. Right. Uh, just the the line that, you know, we were being hunted, but he's really just talking about him and Rachel being being hunted, but not for them both being replicant, but because she obviously was, and then what her her later ability, if you will, you know, uh, <laughs> is. So that's one of, one of the kind of like the nuances because it, it doesn't seem like it was, there's ever like one definitive, especially if you do have a couple writers and a director and an actor all saying like no or yes and, so if the people that are making the film aren't even on the same page, then right. um, then what are we to decide, you know, as viewers? But you can make the case either way, and I think that's one of the things that is kind of neat about that film. And it does; it's it's constantly it, it leaves you with something to question, and you can question your own your own value in in terms of life. You know what? You know what are you? And um, yeah, so. I, the, the ambiguity is maybe something actually, you know, is for of you to go ahead and latch on so you can go ahead and question it about yourself. Not that whether you're a replicant or not, but what is your, what are you? You know, what is your reason? Why are you here? Right. I've never really, I mean, I think it's kind of an interesting Easter egg, but it's not something that's ever been that important for me in the film. Like like I said, it's sort of an Easter egg, but I think the other themes, I, either way, like it doesn't, either way is not going to diminish my appreciation of, of the film whatsoever. Like I could, I almost like it better that he's in some ways that Decker is not a replicant mm-hmm. though, in the sense of that way he's more identifiable with us, the every, the every man and I, and creates sort of a more of a parallel, but I'll, I'll, the, delve into that later whenever yeah, we it, it, it gives it for me um and again you can make your case either way but for me i like him more as a human because it it, it does even add more weight to roy saving yeah, him right? at the end you know what i mean um so that's one of the things that i've for like that scene alone is why i prefer to think of deckard as as a human and not a replicant because with him killing obviously tyrell and um, when you, when we began, you, you mentioned like, well, you know, why doesn't he kill him? Why does he, you know, why does he save him? Um, I think it's kind of like paired with him. Like the question I have is why did he kill Sebastian? You know, like, uh, yeah, I've never really understood yeah, I don't that, understand that either. but it works in the sense because doesn't he, he carries around like his jacket or something or like after, or he wears his coat. I can't remember what it is. He, he carries and shit, I, I I made a note when I saw it, but I can't even remember what it was. But he carries something of Sebastian's uh, with him. I did not. I'd never noticed that. Yeah, and it's almost like there is a form of regret 
Um, and, or there, there, there was a moment where he, he became a little bit more human and, and there's still kind of like the element of chess and him chasing around. And when he finally has him checkmated instead of killing him, because we, Sebastian's killed off camera, right? So, right. so you're, it's left to an interpretation and, you know, and without the kind of a, the dialogue, you wouldn't really necessarily know what, what happens with him. But he, like I said, he, he's carrying something and, and maybe I'm completely high right now, but I, <laughs> I'm almost positive I'm, uh, he, there, there was something that he, that he takes with him, but him sparing or saving uh, Deckard at the end was just kind of a uh, a form of redemption, and then just the very beautiful and, and sad um, death, and with the and then with the uh, the dove, the dove, right? Yeah, um, or pigeon, whatever it was, whatever bird it was, it was and a dove, dove, and just like flying away, and kind of you know he he's fully been redeemed, and. Yeah. Another one of my favorite shots is, I believe this is whenever Gaff is taking Deckard to see Bryant the first time. And so they're in the spinner car and it's that round shaped um, building. Mm -hmm. And the camera kind of does this kind of circular, like it sort of turns counterclockwise a little bit. And the, also the car is also do, doing sort of the same thing. It's like rotating a little bit as they land, but I don't know, something about that shot looks outstanding. I know exactly the the shot that you're you're talking about. When I was watching this a couple of days ago, I remember like noting that moment right there and just thinking that was that was it was just fucking cool. Um but yeah, I was yeah, I love that. They also um also production note is they reused that that building was part of a set for What's the Richard Dreyfus, um, Spielberg, Close Encounters? Close Encounters. Yeah, it was like that was the inside of the ship. Really? Yeah. Huh. But in, so in the in Close Encounters, it's like you're looking up at it, and this you're looking down. At right. It, but it's a similar structure. I thought you said it was the same, but it, it looks a little bit like they've done a little bit of. Uh, set dressing or like oh, gotcha. okay. whatever, but it's like the pretty much they morph that into the building, mm -hmm. which I thought was super interesting. Uh, um, the scene in Terrell's bedroom, another s standout scene. The lighting is great. The way that uh, like Roy's face again, the way his face is lit whenever he's killing Terrell and he's like really just like gritting as he's like squeezing his head he's pushing his eyes into his socket and everything yeah so another production note is they had these uh tubes that went around his ears the actor that played Terrell mm -hmm. that squirted out the that somehow squirted out the blood that was how that was achieved but i don't know there was something really really cool about the way that scene looked and sort of the glow, the red glowing in, in Roy's eyes really gave him sort of that demonic and really mm -hmm. contributed to that like sort of Lucifer. Yeah. Um, Paradise lost sort of vibe. Fucking terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I want more life fucker. Mm -hmm. I just remember watching that scene 
and uh, just being fascinated with how they could even have done that. Because I mean, they there's, I mean, it, it's on his face for a while. I mean, so in terms of like not necessarily panning away. So you, you just watch this and just even it, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel cheap or dated. I mean, it, it just, it, it looks like he's really doing, then you see Rutger Hauer's face and it, you really could, I mean, you really feel the weight of that. And it, it just for, I mean, for the horror that, that, that scene is, it's, it's just, it's a beautifully filmed, just beautifully shot scene. And it's fascinating because on one hand, I mean, you have this character that is capable of such evil. And then, you know, you, you pair that with, you know, when he saves, you know, Harrison Ford later on in the end, at the end of the film. But, um, just to talk about the, 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 the way that the film was, uh, that, that scene was uh, constructed. It's just, again, just, just beautiful. Just, um, and then when at the end with Harrison Ford hanging off the ledge, again, you have Rutger Hauer towering over somebody, you know, so the looking up, but with those two fans yeah. on either side of them. Yeah. That just was a really, really cool look too. Mm hmm. Um, in that Terrell bedroom scene too, there's whenever they first show up and like, Roy emerges. It's like there's a rack focus as he steps into frame. There's like a little real quick rack focus and his eyes have the red glow at the beginning. That that was kind of what I was thinking of originally, but I missed that part. No. <laughs> Just to go back. Uh, let's see. I thought that the scenes in Deckard's apartment were... Oh, they were the whole the lighting was incredible and in all of those scenes because there's two two times that Rachel visits the first is after he initially meets her and puts her through the Voight contest mm-hmm. then she comes back to his apartment and she he shows her or she shows him the photograph of her with her mother and oh that was just very well lit and, and constructed one interesting thing too I thought that was cool about that whole sequence was and it's kind of randomly in there is so she drops that photograph and then Deckard kind of picks it up mm-hmm. and then he like brings it to the camera and then for just a moment before they cut to the next scene that photograph comes to life I don't I don't know if I remember I'm trying to remember. I, I know the scene. I'm just trying to remember that that bit. It's amazing because I've seen the movie like 15 freaking <laughs> right. times. Uh, I don't know if that's something I've just completely, just completely lost in recording, or if I've I've, I've just never ever picked that up. But yeah, ne- next time you watch that scene, pay, pay attention. Just right. It's just for a moment, like it becomes like an actual. There's a little bit of movement, and then there's some sound too mm-hmm. you can hear sort of a young a young girl's voice sort of like a laugh or like a kind of a eh, like a giddiness yeah i'm, I'm all you know my wife is gonna have to watch uh, blade runner again tonight <laughs> so how many t- that actually brings up a good question how many times this week have you watched this film so saw the final uh the final cut and then i saw the theatrical so this week uh because we brought you brought this one up pretty pretty late in the game right. i was uh sorry about that i was oh no 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 <laughs> um any excuse to watch this movie again i'm all for and because i was i was doing some preparation for apocalypse now so when we brought this one back up i'm like oh shit okay let's do this so 
this past week I've watched, well, I've seen the movie twice, you know, once the theatrical and once um, you know, the final cut. I've got the Blu-ray that has like every, you know, like right. all the editions <laughs> and everything. So, nice. um, but yeah, but I've probably in the, the various forms, I don't know. I, I probably have only, and I say only, even though it's probably a lot of times, but maybe, maybe 15 or so times. I think I've seen the Blade Runner films. So I think I screened the, the theatrical twice and then the final cut twice as well mm-hmm. to prepare. But I was just kind of curious. That's neither here nor there. Yeah. Do you ever do the director's cut? I've seen it before, but eh, I mean, it's honestly, the director's cut is not all that dissimilar from the final cut. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what the specific differences are between those two versions, but I think they're pretty similar. The director's cut, from what I recall, makes it a little bit more more that Deckard is a replicant. It makes it a little bit more like on the nose, but I could be wrong. That one, like I said, that one I saw... Uh, when I revisited it, like when I, you know, when I was about twenty years yeah, old, yeah, that's pretty, yeah the same because I think that was right around the, yeah, um, because I think up until so I want to say about two thousand or so is whenever the director's cut was released on DVD, mm-hmm. and then it wasn't until like I, like I said about two thousand seven two thousand eight that the final cut came out. So I remember they actually had whenever the DVD for final cut came out, there was a special edition like case. Kind of like the, the Voight Kampf machine was supposed. Mm. That was kind of the vibe to it, but I did not buy that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I uh, a little not. I mean, completely. Just to paint the picture, I remember um, a buddy of mine was working at a college. I was going to I was going to college in Bermuda way back in the day, and he had he he was working. He was like the the IT guy at the at the university, and he had the keys to the like one of like the big like the big um, classroom on campus and there was a massive um, screen and we, we kind of, it, it was like a movie theater and it was a beautiful, it had a beautiful uh, sound, sound room and everything. We watched that movie like on a big screen and uh, that was my, first, you know, I had never seen Blade Runner in the theater or anything. So we saw the director's cut on just this massive like movie projector size uh, screen and it's pretty freaking cool. <laughs> And that just began, like, it, you know, just launched me into, all right, I guess I'm going to be watching Blade Runner all the time now. <laughs> the Alamo Draft House will occasionally do screenings. I've seen it in the theater a couple of times over the last two or three years. Uh, the Ritz does them from time to time. I think they'll oftentimes do some classic, more classic film screenings mm-hmm. there. Uh, so that's the last time. I've seen it there within the last year, year and a half, something like that. Once got kicked out of the Ritz. <laughs> it was my first time ever going to the Ritz. And uh, I was drunk and I was watching The World's End. Um, the Pirates movie? No, 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 no. Uh, the World's End. It's um, an Edgar Wright oh, okay. film. Yeah. That's right. And um, which is about, I mean, the whole movie is about being drunk and like drunk and obnoxious, right? I mean, that's what everything's <laughs> happening in the movie. And I was drunk and obnoxious in the theater and was asked to leave about 10 minutes into the movie. Method acting. Yeah. I didn't know, I didn't know the rules. I had just moved to, to Austin. Ah. It was my first Alamo <laughs> draft house. 
and you don't know the rules i know i know <laughs> because i was drunk i missed the you know uh no talking you know uh, this is now silent whatever yeah another maybe my f- absolute favorite shot in the film is at the end right after roy has saved deckard and they're on the rooftops and we have the giant tdk um, fluorescent mm-hmm. or not fluorescent neon yep. sign in the background. Wow, that that looks incredible. That TDK just ah oh, the because it's got like the red outline and then the white on the inside. I mean, that, and the angle that it's at the it's at like a funny like a forty five degree angle to mm-hmm. them in the background just looks amazing. I mean, everything in that final act of the film is just beautiful. I mean, the whole movie is fun to look at, right? But just the just the end, uh, it, it's it's great. It, it's it's just it's all great. And then, yeah, like his his death, and you know, with again with the uh, the dove. I, I like I, I love the use of blues in uh, in the scene, and because again, everything is so dark, and there is just you know a couple other like uh, with that. There's just a couple other other colors that are kind of brought into that. In, into that into the scene so like cinematography wise i mean it's just it's beautiful just the it, it it's it's a real treat to look at that film definitely like i said i think three of probably my favorite shots of all time maybe literally my favorite three shots of all time are rachel with the smoking mm-hmm. when he's performing the void comp uh the the ending in front of the tdk and then, like I said earlier, that that shot of that shot of Rachel—that's sort of a profile with the the flashing light in the back. Those are like top three for sure. Uh, but I'm glad that you mentioned the blue because that's something that definitely stood out about about the film. Which you know, typically blue is something that conveys a coldness, um, a deadness mm-hmm. to the film, and an interesting contrast between the theatrical release and the final cut is that the theatrical release was was more blue and i think they pushed it further into the green in the final cut yeah um i liked the blue a little bit better and even you you can attest to this too so whenever i i probably did this too much as as a student filmmaker when i was editing my short i like pushed the blues like so i desaturated the colors and then I pushed the blue like really, really high up mm-hmm. to give it that same like cold, detached, otherworldly feel. But it's just interesting the way that you know a lot of people don't think about w- how color can convey something very subtly in Absolutely. terms of yeah. feeling, mood, mm-hmm. etc. But uh, in terms of visuals, I don't have much else. Do you have any any final thoughts you want? I mean, I think we've just covered from like the beginning of the movie to the uh, <laughs> to the like the final shots of the film. Uh, so, I mean, every what I love about the film, and there are many things, but if we're going to talk about how the overall film looks, it, it the movie itself is it's a it's a college course. I mean, it, it, like of how to make a movie look beautiful. I mean, it's. By today's standards, obviously the movie is over 30 years old. So, and with the special effects of its day, it looks probably a little dated by you know uh, by comparison and contrast to what we have now. But yeah. 
when you have when you when you really look at the fact that there is no CG, you know, in the in that in that in that sense, everything about the movie it it looks it just looks fantastic, and it, it's everything that you need to do to make a beautiful movie. Just just watch Blade Runner, and you want to make a good looking sci fi, watch Blade Runner. It's really that's so funny that you mentioned that. I didn't have this in my notes, but whenever um, Christopher Nolan was getting ready to make the dark knight he had everyone watch blade runner he's like this is how we're gonna make this movie and <laughs> you can you can totally you can totally see it and of course you have um somebody else that's saved from from falling right um oh yeah he yeah. saves uh what's her name rachel dolls yeah mm-hmm. but now now for the fun part uh let's I want to delve into a little bit of the philosophical elements, the symbolism, and and so forth. So, what I really loved about this movie is that it, I sort of had this really, this big epiphany when I rediscovered this film, in that what I thought was that we are very much like the replicants. Um, we are sort of, we are, we are commodified as, as labor to participate in, in the system of global capitalism, much the way that these replicants are. Mm -hmm. Um, and we're sort of given these memory or this narrative sort of quote unquote implant of like a history and, you know what I mean? Like. All the all the sort of narratives around the United States in terms of you know patriotism and you know truth justice the American way the, all of that is that's sort of like our implanted memories that that make us docile and controllable by by the powerful yeah like like birds in a cage <laughs> yeah. um absolutely I mean just being yeah like um just something trapped within the system and yeah mm -hmm. i mean that was just whenever i made that connection i was just like that i think m might have been what obsessed me with this movie was was just that idea like it just total i was like oh wow i okay <laughs> we're the replicants like yeah. that's this is a metaphor for us yeah you know what it's a what's the quote again about being a slave like living in fear that's what it means to be a slave that's what it means to be a slave yep I, you know what i mean in the in the era of global you know the war on terrorism and and so forth and with school shootings and and all of that how i mean how how prescient or how impactful is that you know what i mean that at any time something crazy can happen and you know just the media the, the media portrayals of all you know what i mean something crazy is always happening mm -hmm. you know controlling us and placing us in that sort of in that space of fear mm -hmm. about the future um something else that i thought like another philosophical element to this film that really stands out is okay so i really felt that roy was the nietzschean ubermensch and to flesh that out a little bit. So, you know, Nietzsche's idea was that, you know, without, with the death of God, 
with the progression of society in, in his era, the stepping away from from religious, um, that we would we would the human race or society would fall into nihilism, and so belief in nothing, and and it would destroy us in many ways, and that we would have to overcome nihilism and create our own meaning. And that that would be the the ubermensch. It would take the ubermensch, the overman, the superman, if you will, Mm -hmm. to achieve that. And I think that's exactly what Roy does. I mean, he literally kills God. He kills Tyrell violently. I mean, with, you know what I mean? There's like a, it's like almost the, ties into that Oedipal, you know, there's an Oedipal thing going on there too, Mm -hmm. in addition to the sort of paradise lost element, but it's like man kills God, man killing God. So he does that, he kills God, and, you know, it's it's chaos, right? Yeah. But then at the at the end, whenever he saves Deckard, he overcomes that. And in overcoming that, he becomes the the Ubermensch. Mm-hmm. He overcomes his own eye. He creates his own meaning, even though Deckard wanted to kill him. He he transcends he transcends all of that and realizes that you know he you know Deckard could have died he was gonna die yeah like that, there was he you know there was that he understood that same kinship instead of contributing to more chaos and nihilism he he overcomes it and rescues Deckard and gives that you know just beautiful speech about you know. Everything, all all my memories, everything that's important to me, all these things will be lost in time, like tears and rain. So all of my efforts, all the everything I've worried about is would just be lost. But he gives he gives his life meaning by saving Deckard. Ultimately, yeah. I mean, I mean that that the with knowing his own like his own mortality and knowing that you know his his time is in essence up. I mean, it's, it's already gone, you know, and the, the, um, the, just the poetry of, of, you know, what he says and then dies, you know, but, uh, his final, his final act was, was just an overall like act of, of mercy and, and, and kindness. And it was, yeah. Um, I'm getting sad. Um, what I also thought was interesting too, like there's a lot of Christ symmetry with uh, Ruth Roy or, or symbolism too, in the sense of so nailing through the he's got the right, so he's got like his own stigmata essentially mm-hmm. going on there too. Um, but when he goes to when he leaps across the before he leaps across that the two buildings, he actually ha- already has the dove in his hand. Yeah, and so obviously Christ, like there's some symbolism with Christ and the dove. Also, the biblical tale of Noah, you know, when he, whenever the dove came out, that was the sign that, or that was the promise, right? Or there, there was some kind of like dove symbolism there with both Christ and Noah. I'm trying to think. There was something else along these lines that I thought was super interesting. I mean, obviously, going back, like I said, he's to the paradise lost, the fallen angel aspect of it, too which is a weird like dichotomy. He's like, mm-hmm. sort of this devil, but he's also Christ. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, 
very complex, a lot, a lot of nuances to it because I mean, yeah, you have the fallen angels because they, they come to earth and, and raise hell. And, and then there is, yeah, at, at the end, kind of that Christless Christ like, um, uh, themes that go on. Um, and then, you know, he does die and then the, the dove flies off into the, into the sky. Now here's a interesting part too, is that the, directors no not the directors the theatrical release the sky is blue and like mm-hmm. everything but in the final cut it's the same dark dank smoky gray right. world that we've been accustomed to throughout the whole film it's funny because i always i always, I, don't, I don't even think about it. i just i always think of it as the blue you know and and yet i've, I've seen the final cut far more I've never even noticed that it was an entirely different color yeah, it's like it's totally, totally different. <laughs> like the sun is shining and everything. It's like a pretty blue sky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, another really interesting thing or tie-in to philosophy for me and my obsession with Baudrillard's idea of the simulacra and simulation is so the tagline for the Terrell Corporation is more human than human. Mm-hmm. And Baudrillard's idea of the the simulacra is it's the the copy that's more real than the original, which I thought that was just like mm-hmm. that's a stunning, like perfectly, you know, parallel there that I thought was really really cool to un sort of make that connection, but also I think goes into. Baudrillard's notions of like the simulation and that ties into sort of the way that we're these memory implants being sort of a stand-in for culture and like this you know what I mean mm-hmm. these historical these narratives that were brought up in to sort of control us and and make us malleable and and so forth I'm I'm still I'm, I'm stuck you know just thinking about about um about Roy and when when we had just talked about uh, just a moment again with uh with Christ and everything and the the line that Tyrell says to him right you know uh, a light that burns bright only you know uh lasts half as long and you have burnt you know so very very bright um I just I, I knew there was another line in the movie that you know uh that I that I was really really drawn to and it really just that line kind of just encapsulates um, so much, uh, so much of that, that philosophy that you're that you're discussing. I'm just thinking about that. He also within that, so he says that, but then he says, "Revel in your time," mm-hmm. which I thought was that was maybe one of my. I forgot that being another favorite line from the film. Just like enjoy, like enjoy, live, live the moment, like enjoy yeah. this, like live now, like enjoy this moment. That you're burning here, you're burning bright. Enjoy it, mm-hmm. <laughs> make the most of it, which I thought was important, especially in the context of like, you know, I want more life, fucker. Yep. I mean, that's that's sort of that's a big conflict, I think, ultimately for me, like this existential idea of like confronting death. It's like, yeah, I I want more life, fucker. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I I want to live. I wanted that eternal life, dog. And <laughs> and what's 
what makes it beautiful? Well, I mean, there are many things that make it beautiful, but right. I mean, he, if you, if you have just a, a few moments, you know, what, what is going to be the, what's going to be that last thing you do? You know, what is going to be that, that final, that final act? Is it going to be in an act of, you know, um, murder or is it going to be an act of savior, you know? And, um, it, it, it's beautiful just to know in that. And that's one of the things that makes, makes Roy's character. So kind of like redeeming and, and tragic at the same time is throughout the entire film, he's just been this, you know, this menacing force that's just uh, done a lot of, a lot of bad things and a lot of killing. And, um, and he obviously kills God and it's almost in, in his end becomes very godlike by, by, by saving someone else. And, it just it's yeah, it's just beautiful and poetic and yeah i think it's interesting too in the sense that so i don't know if you remember this but he's having the conversation roy's having the conversation with terrell about well what about what about these different methods like what about this and this and the, terrell's like shutting down he's like no this you know this leads to a mutation and a virus and blah blah, blah death which i thought was really interesting so roy is like He's trying to use his reason and his logic and his like scientific method to escape death, but mm-hmm. Terrell's like God's like no, there is no escape. Yep, I've made you as well as I can make you. Mm-hmm. You know, revel in your time. Just got to accept it, bro. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I thought was great. But uh, any any thoughts on final thoughts on? sort of the philosophical themes there are some more like i think real world um parallels that i think are somewhat interesting to delve into before we close out but do you have anything else uh not on this but i I, I highly welcome you know whatever whatever else you'd like to kind of bring up and we can go from there okay um i don't think we want to go too too much longer but i had some sort of interesting thoughts like um just how well and how prescient prescient this film was in terms of obviously you know the environmental devastation mm-hmm. the the loss of animal life um pollution off world colonies i mean how how timely is it that elon musk is is shooting his car in space yeah so how great like, is that by the way just he I, I made a joke, and I'm, I'm not kidding. I mean, he with that one that one photo of the Tesla in space. Um, I mean, everybody should just quit Instagram because you're not going to top <laughs> that photo. I mean, that's just like the greatest thing ever, right? I'm sort of of two minds. It's like I think it's great because I'm all about space exploration. I mean, I think that is necess- it's a necessity for the survival of of the species. But at the same time, it feels a little bit, I don't know, there's so much suffering going on in the world that it almost feels a little bit frivolous too. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Especially in light of like the other things surrounding Elon Musk and his treatment of workers and so forth that I think is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I almost think, so him and I think Jeff Bezos in particular are like maybe our Tyrells of this generation. Like they don't have quite... <laughs> To real money, but yeah, it, Bezos they, is close. They're getting close. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I kind of like bring it back, you know, uh, regarding some of those with, uh, with devastation and, uh, the extinction of, of animals. Um, it's, and it's one of those things that like in a lot of futuristic, uh, films, a lot of them kind of tap onto something very much like that. And like Wally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and not to you know be depressing, but uh, it's one of those things that we that we see because of the fact that it's so abundantly clear. That's where we're. I mean, obviously, it's not going to happen in the year twenty nineteen, um, but it, it's so abundantly clear. That's where we're headed. I mean, yeah. we 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 suck the the life and natural resources as you know as quickly and as possible for. Um, you know, uh, all for, you know, to the highest bidder, you know, and who wants, you know, uh, who's, who wants this there, if they can, if they can go ahead and pay for that, then, you know, we're gonna, if somebody says, Hey, I need this, I need all the trees. If you put in the, the right, the right bid, you're going to get all of them. You know, it's like, I, I need this and, but we have to kill the animals. All right. You know, as long as you have the, the check large enough, you're going to get it. And, um, so the, the fact that, you know, when, when we when we see the owl and and we we learn pretty quickly that yeah i mean that's a replicant right i mean right. so it's it's devastating um and now we'll go fast forward into 2049 i love the dog um <laughs> but i'm a sucker for dogs anyway but yeah no it's it's just another just another reminder of what what we as as society and civilization what we're what we're capable of you know we're we're capable of creating life but just the 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 sheer amount of destruction and just sucking sucking life from things you know is is appalling yeah i mean we're definitely in the middle of a mass ex- i mean we are literally in a mass extinction event right now and you know they've called this era the Anthropocene mm-hmm. because of our impact on the environment mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, along those lines, I had a really eye-opening experience this week. I volunteered at the food bank. Did you? Yeah. And uh, so that, on your own or were you forced no, by work or <laughs> I wasn't forced by work, but it was just an opportunity. I like, I wanted to, I wanted to do it for a while. That's awesome. Good for you, man. Um, and so I had read too, like earlier this week that, and I've had heard this before, but um, 40% of the food that we produce gets thrown out. And so this, which like, it's one thing to hear that number, but it's another thing to be at the food bank. And like, even the food bank throws away, you know, while I was there, you know, I was like on sort of a trash duty and Mm -hmm. dumped out probably like four or $500 worth the baked food, you know, baked good or no pounds, not dollars worth, but Mm-hmm. but pounds of food just just thrown out and i'm just thinking like i'm extrapolating that to you know just here in, and that's just here in austin like yeah. holy shit like the amount of resources it takes and we're throwing away 40 percent mm-hmm. because it's it's not just you know the it's like the amount of land that we had to clear to grow that food and the amount of fertilizer that we had to use and the amount of you know the trucks to transport it and the gas and so forth to do that to cook it the all of the ingredients like all of this stuff 
I mean, that's just an exponentially large amount of resources that are just getting thrown out. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's just mine. I mean, it was, like I said, it was really eye-opening to see it. You know what I mean? It was almost like, kind of felt like Neo in the Matrix whenever <laughs> Morpheus showed him the real world. It was like, holy shit. Yeah. And everything. I mean, everything from even just the the single onion that maybe you have on your on your counter just everything that it took for that that onion to actually get there and we go ahead and you know maybe we had the onion too long we didn't we didn't use it and we we throw that away and you look at everything that it took to you know get there and just the the resources that that went to bringing it there and then we 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 just throw that shit away you know, we have condiments in our fridge past their expiration data. Okay. Out, right. Just go ahead and throw it away. Whatever. No big deal. And we don't give it a second thought either. Like nope. that's, it's Mm-mm. so ingrained. Like that's in our narrative that it's okay to, you know what I mean? Yep. That's the expiration date. Whatever. <laughs> Get rid of it. Right. Perfectly okay. good food. Yeah. It's wild, man. Blew my mind. Oh, just trying to think if there's any other standout. Yeah. Really don't have much else. Honestly, um, I apologize. I'm having kind of like a like an allergy, <laughs> like freak this week, no and worries. so I'm a little a little loopy up top. But <laughs> I can't. I'm, nothing else is coming to mind, right? You know, um, I feel bad because I've, I I love I love this movie. I can I really can go on for a lengthy time because there is so much oh, to this film and. It's really interesting. What I really like about about this uh, this meeting in the previous one is we've we've both tackled a film uh, or respective films that are within their genre to two of the, the finest films ever made, and what the parallel between the two of them. Neither one of them were really appreciated at at the time that they came out. Blade Runner wasn't as everything that I can see it was really massive success. Uh, wasn't, I mean, it's taken yeah. on, it's taken on a huge life. A cult status for sure. Uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't a big film by, you know, in its day. It's, it certainly wasn't the, the, the biggest film of really Scott's career, even, you know, at, you know, at that point. And, and I don't think that necessarily all art doesn't get recognized originally, but it, it sure does still continue to, you know, go down that, that, that trend where a really, really masterful piece of, of cinema it takes a little while for people to kind of marinate and really find an appreciation and understanding of all the little nuances that made that film. And whether it is um, Rutger Hauer acting his ass off and bringing something really, really to life, you have that. Or uh, the the way that the film was brought together in terms of the cinematography that... that um, really Scott and everyone else, you know, that were a part of it did that. And then just the, the big picture, the big world issues, because I mean, at its core, this movie is about life on earth. Ain't good anymore. We have to get off it. You know, people that can, you know, they've, they fucking left. So the only people that are left are the ones that are stuck rejects and are the rejects. Yeah. And it's something to kind of, kind of look at. Not that I see a world in our generation or our kids generation or our grandkids generation, but we we are we are we are a planet of just sucking natural resources away and and as we're creating artificial life the the need for us becomes less and less and 
and then the, we've there, there will come a time you know <laughs> where will we have a need for that or will they look at or will the things that we created realize that there's not a need for us anymore and it's 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 sci-fi and one of the things i love about sci-fi is it it it, it seems it seems crazy and it, it's it's grounded in, in something that we can't really quite grasp because it, it's out of it, it's it's not what we know of reality but there is something that we can definitely take uh and and look at um we don't fix shit shit shit's gonna get crazy <laughs> and uh that's just one of the things I, I, I love about this film specifically i think there's a lot of parallels with with westworld with a lot of the themes of yeah simulation um that that narrative like that sort of like that narrative that keeps you a prisoner mm-hmm. that that um, oppresses you and keeps you in your little narrative sort of loop, like those uh, should I the hosts. Now, did you ever see? World. Yeah, uh, and I love the HBO. Did you have you ever seen the the um, the original film at all? I haven't seen that yet, but I'm a big Yul Brenner guy. Yeah, um, but no, just the fact that you brought up Westworld, definite tons of parallels, tons of parallels. And then obviously this was created after uh, the original Westworld, but I don't, I don't I mean, I don't think of one copying the other. And I don't really think of this one necessarily being inspired. Obviously this came from, you know, it, it's, it's original context and the HBO Westworld came from its original context, Crichton, I believe. Right. Yeah. Um, so, but I mean, they're, they're both tapping onto something that is very, very real if you get rid of the idea of just, you know, robots, uh, you know, going, uh, going against their God, but the, the overall, just the complexities and nuances and things that the filmmakers are trying to say is, is set very much in reality. More real than real, the hyper real dude. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I, I pretty much want to wrap us up. I do want to, I guess, sort of preview, do you have an idea of what you want to do for your next next film since we are doing a series of these? We are. We are. And um, we should talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so if you haven't thought given thought of that's I, fine. I, I that's just it. I've thought of many and <laughs> there there there's a lot of thing a lot of films that I really want to tackle. And there's one that I have on my list, but I, I don't know if I want to do it yet. Okay. Uh but I'm going to say, and it was on my favorites list, and now you know this is on my best film series. But nope, nope. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. No, I will. I'm gonna go ahead and say. Um, actually, I don't know if it was on my favorites, but one of the greatest films. I'm gonna go ahead. It, it's another classic, but I don't know. We've done. I've, I've done a, an older movie. I don't know if necessarily wanted to uh, tackle a classic, but Lawrence of Arabia will be oh, okay. uh, will be one of my uh, one of my films. I just don't know if I'm gonna do it next but gotcha. i want to do but i want to tackle lawrence of arabia because i i just for me i think that's just one again another movie with great philosophy and a lot of fun themes to kind of really tackle but one of the greatest war um epic films anyway uh so lawrence of arabia will be will be coming at you nice. at some point but i think i want to do something a little bit a little bit lighter a little a little less heady <laughs> but still offers a lot a lot of Dude, my top five are all like totally 
intense. You're strapped in like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to give us a little bit of relief, you know. Uh, but yeah, so I'm going to I'm going to have Lawrence of Arabia up there, but I'm I'm still weighing a couple other films. Okay. Yeah, I'm tentatively thinking Inoritus Amores Peros. Yes. Next. But uh we are going to close out on that note. I'm going to play us a little little traveling music. <laughs> 